Ah, mon Afrique, réveille-toi. Il est midi. Tu dors encore. Réveille-toi. N'écoute pas Babylone. Il t'est fourni des armes pour tuer ton peuple. N'écoute pas Afrique. Afrique Ananga Oyamba, toi cheveux crepus. Bah toi Mayele Bosimba Niba Bigé. Oya Bilanga Bosimba Niba Congo. Simba Niba Boko Mouna Lekate. Afrique Malobate. Monsalande. Africa, Mobali Yamingao, Africa, Hatona Mosolo, Africa. Tu gagnes ton nom par-ci par-là. Quand c'était les blancs, Negro a souffert, mais c'était mal de connaître. Negro a combattu pour arriver en black en black, devenu le stade de la guerre. Ta raison, la tricherie, ta seule arme. Tu cries la démocratie pour ton profit personnel, toi, Africa. Tu règnes par la justice, la course au pouvoir, toujours des coups d'état, toi, Africa. Tu es le dernier 
Africa. Afrique, où est ta fierté Où est ton ambition Tu dois défendre tes enfants, tes intérêts. Tu sais bien que tu es convoité. Je suis ton enfant, Afrique. Je dois bénéficier de mon indépendance, de mes richesses, de ma faune, de l'éducation, de la démocratie et de la nouvelle technologie. Yeah, Africa, où es-tu, Africa? Africa, where is your pride, your ambition? You must defend your children, your interests. You know how well you are covered. Welcome to Congo Live, the authentic voice of the Congolese people. Uh, we know uh, Kambali is here with me as usual, and today's a little bit different than what we usually do on the show. Uh, we are on uh, the highway, as you guys uh, may have heard, and we're heading to the studio due to a little bit of snow and traffic. But I will definitely be there. Somebody, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. It's a very interesting uh, show today. Uh, but as you said, the show must go on. Uh, we've inclement weather in Washington, D.C. Uh, we've had snow last night. But I'm very excited about today's show where uh, we have a very special guest joining us later on this, uh, uh, during the show. Uh, yes, our guest is Tom Periello who works for the State Department, and he's also the Special Envoy of the Great Lakes region for uh, Obama, who's going to be talking a little bit more about what is currently happening in the Congo, and then we have some questions that people have sent in advance, uh, and we'll get to hear a little bit from him, what his take on what is currently happening, and then also get some of these questions answered. But before we do, uh, if Kamele, you can please give us the news on what's currently happening on the ground. Yes. Uh, the parties to the mediation effort led by Congo's Catholic Church say 
the dogs will now produce an agreement before Monday, uh, Monday December 19th, which is supposed to be Kabila's uh, Congress president's last day in uh, office. Uh, the dogs are to resume on Wednesday, but it is difficult to see how the dogs will produce if the situation degrades uh, in the talk. Uh, both the European Union and the United States this week sanctioned Congolese officials. Uh, the U.S. took the bolder stance in sanctioning uh, Congo's Minister of Interior, Evaristo Bouchard, and the head of intelligence, Kalev Mutant. Bloomberg News reported in an exhaustive investigation that President Kabila and his family has amassed a vast business empire in the DRC. According to Bloomberg News, Kabila and his siblings have assembled an international business network stretching across at least 70 companies, and the family possesses 120 permits to dig gold, diamond, copper, cobalt, and other minerals. Pretty much the Kabila family has been running uh, Congo's as a personal property, just as Leopold did back in the 1800s. And last, News outlet reports that the government plans to restrict or shut down the Internet on Sunday in advance of uh, the planned protest by the Congolese youth, uh, Congolese youth who have been organizing for change in the DRC. Congo, 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 Congo,
um, how did you end up in uh, Sierra Leone working with the uh, prosecutor uh, for the special court? It was really an amazing and transformative experience. <clears throat> I was actually uh, in law school when I began working on Sierra Leone. It had, at the time, was in, I think, year 9 or 10 of its terrible civil war that was defined by uh, just soul-crushing atrocities, including uh, amputations and disembowelment of uh, pregnant women and, and mass atrocities. It was partly related, of course, to blood diamonds, but was much more complicated than that. And I went over during my third year in law school, and um, we were trying to create a support a human rights clinic at the university there, Fort Bay College. And as I got to know the activists, most of them women, who were risking their lives every day to try to bring their country out of civil war and into peace, they kept telling me that I needed to uh, you know, drop whatever I was planning to do, whatever high-paying job uh, I was looking to do in the world, and come there. And I remember saying to, to one of the women, you know, what can I do? I'm an, an American, I'm white, I don't know the language, I don't know the uh, culture. And uh, she said, well, if you're standing next to us, we're much less likely to get shot. And we would think that was very valuable to us. And uh, I thought that was the best job pitch I had ever been given. So... I sent, uh, sent back my signing bonus uh, at the firm and decided to move to Sierra Leone and work uh, with uh, these amazing uh, NGOs and others who over the next year did get a peace deal. They did get a DDR process, got a truth commission, and a special court started. And as you mentioned, I did go on to work with that special court that was instrumental in getting uh, the dictator next door, Charles Taylor, out of power without a single shot being fired. Um, and it was really a testament, I think, to the vision and courage of so many Sierra Leoneans uh, that they were able to pursue both peace and accountability and not by uh, the, the idea that those things are a trade-off. Well, that's, that's uh, definitely inspiring, and I can see even uh, where the spirit about uh, working and fighting for the people has come from. And that brings me to uh, your congressional experience. Um, were the special courts uh, working with the prosecutor? You come back to the United States and you run. You ran for office. Uh, what moved you for the state of Virginia to run for office uh, to become a congressman in that area? Well, one of the things that uh, has always been very important to me is the idea of service. I grew up in a, a faith tradition that focused a great deal on. Uh, the idea that we will be judged by what we do for others, particularly the most vulnerable among us. And it was an opportunity to, to come back and be around my family and be based in my hometown of Charlottesville. This was the same time Barack Obama was running for president, and there was a deep sense of, uh, of this idea that hope and change could be inspirations, uh, that we could overcome uh, some of our, the worst of our past, including our racial divisions, um, and really focus on a bright future that included democracy and prosperity. Uh, and it was an incredible experience to run, run for Congress. I was uh, inspired to win a race that most people didn't think I had a chance to win, um, and then go on and get to serve uh, with the president in, in a couple of crucial years uh, where we were able to prevent a depression and uh, make our, our health care system and other things a little bit more fair. Um, and so it's a great experience, and I think it's something that I've drawn on a lot in sitting with leaders across the Great Lakes region 
because I think there is a certain experience that comes from having had to win an election and, and serve a constituency. And I think that's given me some sympathy, uh, not just for the opposition, but also for President Kabila and, and many in the presidential majority who uh, do understand the idea that often governing is more difficult than, uh, than protesting uh, and that these are complex challenges. I see. But, well, you brought us right back in uh, into our uh, next question. Uh, Senator, uh, former Senator Ross Seingold uh, was appointed as a special envoy to the Great Lakes region, and after a lot of advocacy from many different groups and students, um, he filled in that office, had quite a lot of strides in you know, bringing an end to the M23 conflict, and being a... Um, a strong voice for peace and stability in the region. Uh, he left, and then uh, you pretty much feel um, you were appointed by President Barack Obama to become the uh, special envoy. Um, was that a surprise to you that you were chosen to uh, be the special envoy, or there were already some work being done for you to actually fill in that seat? Look, I was really honored to be uh, asked by Secretary Kerry and President Obama. Russ Feingold, as you mentioned, set a very high standard. Uh, but I think one of the things that uh, that you understand in this position is it's not really me and it's not even Russ. It's, it's the position of representing the United States government and the policy of Barack Obama. If I was just showing up as Tom Perriello, uh, it doesn't matter how hard I worked. Um, it, uh, it's just me showing up there. So I understand that part of why we were effective at being able to get, you know, human rights activists out of jail to protect space and political space for the Constitution. Obviously, there, there are places we've fallen short, but I think that is because the United States government uh, and the United States still matters. And it's not just the government. Uh, I've been inspired to, to meet so many American NGO workers who are out there saving lives and trying to help build communities. Uh, even American businesses that have to obey the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act and are really trying to show that you can do um, business without corruption in a country that has so much promise. So it was awesome to be asked. Uh, it has been a great year and a half doing this. It'll wind up here shortly. Um, but, you know, it was, it was interesting for me, as you noted, to be able to draw on different elements of experience as a former NGO worker, as a former politician, um, and as a, uh, a former politician and, and diplomat uh, to draw on those. But really, again, I think the story here is being written by the Congolese people, not by outside countries. Uh, but it's, it's an honor that the United States has been standing with the people of the region and their desire for uh, constitutions to be respected. So your position uh, is uh, the, no, the Great Lakes region. Uh, from your time in uh, in office right now, uh, what can you share about what the U.S. foreign policy is for that region at this moment? Specifically well, for Rwanda, Uganda, Congo, and Burundi. Right. Well, the United States has really, over the last 15-plus years, has had a deep commitment over both Republican and Democratic administrations uh, to atrocity prevention in the region as a major priority, uh, to security and stability, and to respect for rule of law and constitutionalism, including the empowerment of women, uh, both at a grassroots and a political level. And you've seen that year in and year out, a commitment on those areas. Obviously, we invest a great deal of money in the MINUSCO peacekeeping effort and addressing armed groups in eastern Congo. Uh, we've worked hard in Burundi to support 
post-conflict reconciliation, including across ethnic lines, which tragically has moved backwards in the last year and a half after 10 years of, uh, of progress in that regard. Um, so the United States has been a very clear partner with both governments and peoples who are willing to, uh, to move towards from a system of civil war and a system of might makes right to a system of rule of law. And President Obama obviously made a lot of headlines in Addis Ababa a couple years ago with his speech talking about the fact that in, in Africa we wanted to prioritize strong institutions, not strong men, and that included the focus on respecting term limits and democratic transfers of power. And one of the things about that was that it wasn't based on just an abstract principle. It was also based on research we had done that showed that countries where incumbent leaders changed the rules to stay in power were four times more likely to trigger an economic and security crisis. And that in Africa, 90% of the countries that have allowed a democratic transfer of power have then subsequently not had any crisis when they've had to do the same thing. So this is really a game changer. It's a turning point for countries when they allow this transition. Uh, I think President Obama was very visionary to put down that marker, and we worked very hard uh, to advance it. Unfortunately, I think the tragic situation in Burundi proves why President Obama's advice was correct that even a very popular and charismatic leader like President Franziza, uh, who I think had a lot of genuine love from the people, even in that situation, uh, when he made the decision to break the Arusha Accords and Constitution, really triggered the disillusion and disintegration in many ways of the country and the decade of progress. Uh, we hope DRC will be the success story. Uh, there's still an opportunity left uh, for President Kabila and all sides to make the compromises to see this as one of the great moments in Congolese history instead of a tragic and unnecessary return to the violence of the past. Uh, thank you so much for a little bit of that feedback, uh, and it's an honor to have you, uh, Envoy Periello, on the show. Uh, a question I have, uh, I've been working with the youth uh, on the ground, and you speak of institutions and you speak of the different areas of what makes a democracy uh, what a democracy, a democratic country is. Uh, one of the things that I've been watching is I'm watching these dialogues where people are coming to better and, uh, together and talking about the future of these institutions uh, when you have institutions for example where it's non-functioning where you have the education system that's not functioning when you have 95 un uh, percent unemployment rate when you have six million people's lives that have been lost how do you get the people who are not a part of the political groups who are not a part of the opposition groups who are just the people who are the ones directly being affected by these things how do you get them on board with these leaders who have shown that the uh, they, they don't have the voluntariness of wanting to do something about making fundamental changes. How do we uh, convey that to the people who may be listening in? Well, again, I think one of the things we've learned over the years is that democracy is not just about elections. It's mm -hmm. not, uh, uh, it has to be about a broader set of societal um, investment in the institutions. It has to be about public education that's available to all. It has to be about ensuring basic freedoms, including minority uh, rights, uh, are part of that equation. But it also must involve elections. There can't be transfers of power that are simply mm -hmm. based on might makes right. And I think 
in the DRC, we see, you know, progress on several of these axes, but also challenges. Uh, I've said to President Kabila himself that I think he deserves credit for the DRC being one of the freest places within the Great Lakes region up until the last year and a half, where there really was a lot of space for civil society and media access uh, for working, as you mentioned, towards the fundamentals of good governance and inclusion, uh, not just in the formalities of, of voting, but do people have uh, access in an everyday sense to, uh, to decisions in their lives? And I think in, in DRC, sometimes people will try to make a false choice of saying, well, we need to focus on development instead of democracy or what the priorities are. And all of these go hand in hand. Um, without accountable leadership, um, accountable accountability coming through the democratic process, not just voting, but mm-hmm. access to the courts and other measures, then you're not going to see improvements on the kind of kleptocratic barriers to infrastructure development or, or uh, addressing some of the armed groups that continue to operate and terrorize uh, civilian populations. Um, um, obviously, yeah. Oh, no, no. I, I just wanted to actually ask you a question. And, uh, my, my One of my main uh, things that I'm thinking, as even you're talking about, is uh, just yesterday I was watching a video of uh, General Kanyama talking and letting people... Uh, letting the population know that uh, look at this picture uh, make sure that you say uh, you know you look at your pictures you may not come back when you have a democratic state as we do and you have the youth who just want to protest which is part of having a democracy uh, we see it all the time in Washington DC how do we explain when we have a general who's in office who's been selected by people such as Kabila do saying such things as that and basically threatening to go to war with the people well, obviously, we think those are well outside the bounds of the law of the Congolese Constitution, as well as international norms, and that's why we have been willing to target individual sanctions at those individuals, including Kanyama, who we think have been committing grave human rights abuses, undermining the security situation, and undermining democratic institutions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and obviously, we've tried to get smarter about that, where we don't put the sanction on the government as a whole where where it's possible to target it on an individual who is responsible. But I think these sorts of terror tactics uh, that we see from government tend to come from weakness, not strength. I think it's very clear to countries throughout the region and more generally uh, mm-hmm. that if uh, President Kabila's government had broad support from the people, they wouldn't need to be shutting down radio stations, they wouldn't need to be preventing uh, public rallies, they wouldn't need to be trying to cancel soccer matches. And I think ultimately one of the things I've heard most often from leaders in the region is you need to listen and not lecture. And one of the things I think that's true in Congo is that we have listened. And what we've heard very clearly is that people want their constitution to be respected. They want a chance to to select their next leaders. And they don't want to see these kinds of repressive tactics uh, that we've seen from the government. And I do sense that Congolese people are willing to be very forgiving um, about some of the errors that have been made, so long as there is an agreement across the stakeholders to allow this process to proceed. Well, uh, let's take a short break. We're going to listen to Mohombi singing Moana Congo. Uh, Mohombi is also a Congolese, and uh, we'll be right back. Thank you. Nalingio Congo Banyokoli 
piso Ils veulent te détruire Et puis s'enfuir Mais ta joie de vivre Va tout reconstruire La ligne à caillot singer in this song he speaks about uh, the struggle of the Congolese people and how uh, they are striving for change as well in the Congo um, especially for Perilia I'm curious to know if uh, in your, during your time uh, in the DRC you were able to pick up a few Congolese uh, languages uh, Lingala or Swahili uh, how, how is your Congolese-ness if I should say it is embarrassing uh, I had hoped to pick up a lot more language. Even my French is embarrassing. Uh, so, uh, I, I, you know, not only did I fail on the language, but one of the things I've always heard about is the amazing art scene and music scene in Congo. Yeah. And I was able to get it through the radio, and I saw this amazing exhibit in Europe called Beauté Congo that captured a lot of music and art. But I think it's fair to say there is a great deal of... Um, vibrancy throughout the Great Lakes and particularly the DRC from language to art that uh, that I, I did not get to indulge in. I see, I see. Well, we have, we've received uh, quite a lot of um, questions from uh, different people from around the world as you may uh, guess, you know, a lot of people are anxious about uh, December 19th. Uh, some of the callers uh, or our listeners that want to know Will the United States continue to recognize Kabila as the president of the Congo beyond December 19th? I think what you've already heard from the European Union after their ministerial is a sense that there's not going to be business in, as usual after December 19th. I think our strong hope has been that there will be a consensus agreement before December 19th that makes clear a commitment to timely elections and the nature of an interim government and power-sharing arrangement. As of this morning, it looks like that's uh, less likely, um, with the bishops having, I think, departed now from the Vatican. Um, but uh, that, that's our hope, is to continue to push for a consensus agreement. Um, but it's certainly something we're going to be looking at broadly after, uh, after Monday. I see. And another question from a caller uh, from uh, Virginia. Rebecca wants to know, 
Um, given the U.S. history in the affairs of the Congo, did you find it hard to earn the people's trust? And how did you find, um, how did you try to craft a different approach to U.S. involvement, uh, you and as well as uh, Senator Ras uh, Feingold? Uh, how would you describe the difference between you and Senator Ras Feingold? So, uh, first of all, I'm glad you're getting questions from the great Commonwealth of Virginia. Um, the question about the history is always a complicated one, because I think people have learned... I think the history of the Cold War period and the colonial period uh, is well known, um, but I think the question is what lessons people learn from that. And I think some will learn the, the lesson that we shouldn't be involved at all, uh, and you know we respect those who feel that way. Uh, the other has been some sense that we shouldn't just listen to uh, or do deals with leaders, often corrupt and unaccountable leaders, as we have sometimes in the past, but listen directly to the people and try to be a partner to the aspirations of the people. And I think that's one of the reasons why our policy in the DRC has been so popular among Congolese people. Uh, and I certainly get that everywhere I go, whether it's Lumumbashi or Goma or Kinshasa is a huge amount of uh, support and appreciation for the American position because we've rooted it in Congolese values and law. There's not a single thing we're pushing for that is not already uh, mentioned uh, in the Congolese constitution that isn't uh, popularly supported by the Congolese people. So this isn't some imposition of a strategy from outside. Um, there's no country where we are pushing for respect for term limits where those term limits do not already exist within local law. So I think that's one of the things we've learned is to try to make sure we're listening to all the people in the country, mm -hmm. uh, that we're trying to find the place where we share common aspirations. Um, and again, I think that's been a positive thing. In Burundi, I think that's been more complicated where you have a population that is more deeply split about what has caused the crisis and what is the path forward. And there we, again, have tried to work with all sides of that conflict to listen and learn with some humility, um, but draw certain things that are absolutes for us, like standing against uh, hate crimes and hate language, standing against ethnic division, um, standing for the Arusha Accords. And again, we've tried to root our policy there very clearly within uh, those rules and standards that have been set within the region. Uh, as for Russ Feingold and the comparisons, uh, you know, he's, uh, uh, he's an incredible guy with a great deal of, of diplomatic experience. That was, those were big shoes to fill. Um, but I think we probably ended up sharing a lot more in common in style uh, and certainly in position uh, than others. And that goes for so many of the career partners we had around us, like Linda Thomas-Greenfield, the Assistant Secretary for African Affairs, and others who've just been uh, exceptional uh, partners on I see. Uh, we have a question actually from Kinshasa, uh, coming from uh, Congolese youth leader Jean-Marie Kalongi. He actually spent almost eight months in jail um, starting December 15th of last year and it was released in August. Uh, he would like to know um, if Kabila shoots uh, to, the, uh, shoot to uh, the population when they come out to protest on Monday uh, for the respect of the constitution, what will be the reaction of the United States? We have been absolutely clear, publicly and privately, uh, that there will be consequences for the use of violent repression uh, against nonviolent uh, citizens. 
Um, first of all, I want to thank him for his courage and leadership. I really do think there have been so many people, particularly young people across the country, who have put their commitment to the Constitution ahead of perhaps their, partic- their uh, commitment to their own personal security. Uh, I've been honored to meet many of those who have uh, suffered jail time. Um, we've worked hard to get people out of jail. Uh, as well, who we believe were put in as political prisoners, not based on any legitimate crime they had committed. Um, so I think it's going to be, I think history will look kindly on those uh, who showed uh, prophetic courage during this uh, key period. Yeah. Um, but we have said there will be consequences for the government. To be clear, though, we have also made, as said to the opposition leadership, that mm. there can be consequences if they switch to endorsing uh, violence, uh, I've noted our precedents from Burundi, where we both sanctioned individuals who attempted the coup in May, uh, and also those who resorted to uh, armed uprising uh, to try to get rid of President Karenziza. So, so far we've seen systematically a nonviolent approach from civil society groups like Lucha and Salimbi and others, um, and we will continue to hold uh, civil society in opposition to that commitment to nonviolence. So, uh, um, see, so you just mentioned uh, Burundi, so I wanted to bring the region in. Um, with your work as a special envoy, have you found it difficult to convey to Kabila the need to transfer power peacefully uh, when others in the region uh, are not leaving power no, and they have not been held to the same standard as the DRC? So, uh, you know, I think... I gave a speech at the United States Institute of Peace yesterday, and I did a little bit of a retrospective on uh, how this policy has worked throughout the region. And I think one of the, the things that was misunderstood was some notion that by declaring we thought that this was the best advice we could give our partners in the region, that it would therefore somehow magically become so. Uh, we have certainly uh, tried to give a very clear sense of why we think respecting term limits is important. Mm -hmm. Uh, As I mentioned, we've seen in Burundi how tragic the the cost can be, and human cost, you know. This is, we can talk a lot about, uh, make it almost a political game about incurrencies as an individual, Um, but we talk less about the 325,000 Burundians who've had to flee the country and become refugees in neighboring countries who will be spending this Christmas time not in their homes with their families, but in tents in refugee camps in Tanzania and Rwanda and Uganda. Uh, tens of thousands more inside the country who've had to flee uh, their homes. People who are in incredible fragility because of a weak harvest and a completely decimated economy. Uh, and too often we see that uh, you know political leaders will play these games to try to extend their stay in power instead of thinking of what's good uh, for the people they represent. So, you know, in those cases where we've not succeeded in getting full respect for those constitutions, including term limits, unfortunately, the human costs have been and remain high, and we will continue uh, to push for that. But this is not something that's always measured in weeks or even months. I think that the lessons of the region will continue to show in retrospect uh, that it is important to hold leaders accountable to, to alter not. But the situation in Burundi remains tragically fragile, and we continue to hope that all sides will commit to the peace process under um, former President Kappa. Uh, I have a question that's uh, that I actually had earlier this week that's coming from a member of Catherine Voyletan, 
who uh, also works with uh, Jean-Marie, who was asking, during these dialogues, uh, where is the youth represented when they represent 60% of the population? What is being planned for them, given that these decisions are being made and it's going to be on their shoulders 20, 30 years from now? Uh, where do they fall into this? Yeah, let me take two parts of that, actually. The first is youth participation, and, and I completely agree with you. You know, going back to my NGO background, I think too often that the voices of the people themselves are left out of these dialogues, and I've certainly sensed in Congo in particular that there's a great deal of skepticism about all of the political elites, not just in the presidential majority, but in the opposition. And there's been a fear for uh, over a year that ultimately there will be a deal cut that is more focused on how to make sure all of the political elites get uh, a piece of the pie instead of actual commitment to the principles that people want. I think, to their credit, the youth groups have been very effective, even when they're not in the room, in making sure their voices are heard through acts of courage, through public communication and engagement. Um, so I do think their voices are being heard inside and outside of these dialogue spaces, but it's absolutely vital. Uh, I will also tell you, and we sometimes struggle with this at home, too, uh, mm -hmm. there are an awful lot of men in the room when we get together to talk about these deals. Mm -hmm. uh, and these are often men, quite frankly, who've been the same men in the room uh, for years and even decades. Uh, and I think making sure that women are present, uh, including young women, uh, is incredibly important and I think tends to produce a very different set of outcomes and ones that are more likely to be committed to, uh, to the greater interests of the country. But you also mentioned the issue of dialogue, and this is something that I struggle with a great deal, um, because dialogue is something that is seen as unambiguously good, and I think particularly African leaders will talk about it in cultural terms. Um, but I will sense in just about every African country I've worked in, actually quite a bit of skepticism about the use of the word dialogue by political elites that it is more often a word that is abused as an excuse to avoid doing their job. Yeah. Uh, in DRC right now, there really didn't need to be a dialogue. We supported it. We supported involvement in it. But there was not any ambiguity in the Constitution. The government had a clear obligation to organize elections. Uh, there wasn't really any question about that. Um, so I think sometimes dialogue is... Um, called more as a delay tactic or a stall tactic or a spin tactic. And Congolese will often tell me that most of the dialogues in Congolese history have been failures, first of all. And second, to the extent they were successful, they were successful in the context of a war or of lawlessness where there was not an existing standard to go against. I go back to the Sierra Leone example where I used to always hear from the Sierra Leonean elites that here people believe in forgiveness, they don't believe in justice and accountability, forgiveness is this, you know, African Sierra Leonean value. So a bunch of my students at the university went out and ran the first public opinion poll, and what we found was that Sierra Leoneans absolutely rejected that idea and wanted justice and accountability for the terrible things that had been done, from atrocities to corruption. So... You know, first of all, if there is going to be a dialogue, it must include young people, it must include women. Um, but also, I think we need to distinguish between genuine dialogues and moments that call for it that really do elevate public debate to a higher level and those times where that's being used as a, a trick or a trap. Yeah. So you, you had a very special office, uh, the special uh, envoy office, um, as we've shared uh, with our network. 
uh, is critical for peace and stability in the region, uh, in the Congo and the region. Um, I want to know, with your time being there, uh, what can you count as a success as you filled in that role? And as you leave this position, uh, what do you think that the vacancy of that position will mean in a Trump presidency? I think that um, we have been successful in deterring some violence and repression in a number of countries. I think we've had some success in supporting efforts to get individuals uh, out of jail or perhaps limit the number of detentions at certain points. I think we've raised the cost of uh, moving forward earlier with efforts to limit media access and other things. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I would say ultimately it's about increasing probabilities. Um, it was, and I said this to civil society leaders and others from the very beginning of my job, which is that ultimately the international community is not going to care as much about Congo as the Congolese people are going to. And that this next chapter of Congolese history is going to be written fundamentally by Congolese citizens. And that international efforts at best will be um, an alliance on the margins to create greater political space for the Congolese voices to shape that future. Obviously, our hope is in the next 24 hours or the next few days uh, that we will get a deal. Uh, we think if the deal is one that gets to elections in a very timely fashion, uh, preferably before the end of next year, uh, with absolute guarantees of alternance and significant power sharing that limits the ability for the government or others to... Um, to tear up that deal uh, a few months from now, uh, that that would be a historic achievement. And I think that our efforts would have been helpful in that regard. But ultimately, the credit in that case would go uh, to the people and not to us. So we've had good days where, where we feel like we've uh, you know, affected uh, the lives in the political space. Uh, but ultimately, what we're hoping is that we're not going to see mass violence next week, that if protests go out on Monday, they will be nonviolent. Uh, that the response mm -hmm. from the government will be nonviolent, and that we have done our part to hopefully make that nonviolent reaction more likely. Um, mm -hmm. But again, we, we realize that at best it's, it's improving, improving the odds. And this is a diff very difficult equation, um, especially just given um, what we are hearing from the youth. You know, they want to see change happen on December 19th going to December 20th. And with the uncertainty of uh, what is happening there, uh, I think you answered already the question around you know, what happened on December 20th around what uh, the U.S. position. Maybe you can elaborate that on that as well. But um, I also want to know about the regional, uh, not the regional, but the continental uh, support. No. Have, have you found in your work uh, that the African Union has been helpful? Uh, how has uh, the African Union helped? in your work as a special envoy in the bringing about peace and stability, especially around uh, the situation of elections in the DRC? The, uh, there have been some great colleagues and partners at the African Union who I think have really been quite uh, inspiring uh, uh, mentors to me and people who I think are fighting for the, the principles clearly laid out in the African Charter and in the African Union's own documents about the importance of constitutions and term limits. 
as an institution, it has the same limits as the United Nations and other places of being a collection of nations uh, that sometimes has a difficult time reaching uh, a consensus position um, ahead of time. I think like our own system, sometimes it's um, a little bit easier to get it to react after things are going wrong than before. Uh, in Burundi, the African Union really did, I think, a pretty um, impressive and inspiring job of being ahead of the curve right up until the point that that got shut down by the Peace and Security Council. Yeah. Um, but before that, the African Union had been very forward-leaning in the Burundi case, and I think it had significantly deterred violence and particularly a more ethnic component uh, to to the instability there. Um, I think in this case, uh, you know, we will say, perhaps surprisingly so, that the region and particularly the Angolans have been a very constructive partner. Um, they may come at this from a different set of priorities, more focused on stability, whereas we're more focused on constitutionalism. But I think you've actually seen uh, people reach the same set of conclusions, uh, which is that the lack of a deal before December 19th is a threat to instability, uh, that the people do want a commitment to alternance in a timely fashion, um, and that efforts to repress and cut off dissent are only making the likelihood of instability higher, not lower. Mm -hmm. um, and I think you've seen leadership uh, from the region uh, in that regard, which is good. As for what happens on Monday and Tuesday, obviously everyone's going to have to make their own decisions. I think there are those in the opposition who think we can magically make Kabila disappear, and those in <laughs> President Kabila's camp who think we can magically make protests disappear. Ultimately, people are going to make their own decisions. Um, what we have said is obviously that we will continue to look at consequences in terms of sanctions and the bilateral partnership uh, as events develop. Uh, that's a good segue to the next one uh, question about uh, specifically the financial backers of Kabila. You know, the uh, Bloomberg this week came out with an article listing um, the finances of how Kabila's wealth, pretty much. Uh, but one of our callers is interested in knowing: uh, Would the United States consider adding financial backers of the Kabila regime, such as Dan Gutler, to the sanctions list? It was it was really a, a bombshell landmark report from Bloomberg. Uh, they'd spent, uh, I understand it, about a year investigating and and uh, uncovering a great deal of information about uh, the the financial networks of President Kabila's family and how that operates uh, throughout the DRC. Um, it's certainly very respected reporters and a very respected outlet to produce that. Um, certainly something the United States government was already. Um, tracking, uh, but certainly we will we will look and take seriously that report. Mm -hmm. Our sanctions regime does allow us uh, to look at uh, those who are aiding and abetting um, in uh, the kinds of uh, human rights abuses and, and, and destabilization and other things that have led to our sanctions to date. Um, separate from the State Department side, uh, it's a matter of public record that our um, uh, system looked into a criminal investigation in the Oxif case yes, uh, yes. of bribes that were paid within DRC that connected to some of the individuals people have been asking about. Uh, that happens on a separate track, but it's certainly something that uh, can happen both in a European and American context. So uh, those are those will be ongoing. I can't speak to where they may or may not go. Um, but I think, again, and independent of that, the hope is that we can find an agreement that allows 
um, everyone to proceed in a, a stable way. Um, and I do want to say President Kabila, I think, uh, gets a lot of grief from a lot of Congolese groups and individuals. And, you know, it's not for me to, to take a position on that other than to say, I think it is important to also remember many of the positive things that President Kabila and his family have done in the country, including, uh, you know, President Kabila as a young man, really forcing everyone to get to the Sun City Accords and reach a peace deal uh, when people expected him perhaps to be more of a placeholder leader. Mm-hmm. He really stepped up on the Constitution itself. It was a key leader. A few years ago, he was willing to go after accountability for rape within his own armed services and have accountability there. Um, so we've seen that time, uh, some really significant and historic achievements from President Kabila. And I think it's important in this transition period that we, we recognize those positive things as well. Well, as we come to an end on the show, I have a question for you. What are some of your favorite memories of uh, Congo or in Kinshasa in general? Or we can even say, which you know, one of your favorite foods? <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. I was uh, there were some young uh, young men in Goma who let me come out and play basketball with them one day, okay. and I got to say, I did not represent well for the United States. <laughs> they were very uh, about putting up with that. There was a, a wedding party one night uh, in one of the hotels I was staying in out there that meant I could not sleep until three in the morning, and eventually just came out and listened to the music and looked out over the lake and. Uh, that was beautiful, you know, getting to fly over uh, Virunga National Forest uh, mm-hmm. in a helicopter and into the volcano. Um, and uh, it's really been amazing. But really, the, the individuals, you mentioned a few of them by name, but, you know, knowing that there were people that spent time in pretty rough prisons for what they believed in and getting to, to share a sandwich or a shawarma with them at, uh, you know, at an area cafe can be, uh, can be a great thing. Um, and so, you know, I really do have a lot of very, very special memories um, from there. Uh, you know, I also have some memories from Geely Airport and elsewhere that uh, may be remembered for, for a whole set of different reasons. But uh, it really has been an awesome, awesome experience. I was really honored to get to know so many Congolese and so many from throughout the region. Thank you for having me on today. Not a problem. And we actually look forward to having you back on the show and just have uh, something that's not so stressful. Uh, <laughs> <It> <laughs> and we could just talk about uh, other things about the Congo. And I hope that uh, working together we can make this world a better place uh, because we do have our children who are looking up at us and we want to leave a good example for future generations to come. I also want to thank uh, Kambali for being in the studio and Tabilulu uh, Productions as always. And we want to thank all our listeners for listening in. And um, Kambali, you, you have this face. Do you, do you want to say something? I'm just very <laughs> happy uh, to have this show. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Special Envoy Perilio, for joining us. And we thank you for the service that you gave uh, this country. Uh, for the past few months working on behalf of the United States, but also seeking peace and stability in the DRC. And well, uh, thank you very much. No, 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 go ahead. We'll be, we'll be praying for everyone in Congo here during this uh, crucial week ahead. Definitely. And uh, we hope everybody has a great weekend and we'll see, we'll be on the radio next week. Yeah.